0: Often, when we think of folk tradition, the first thing that comes to mind is quote-unquote old stories. So folk tales, wonder tales, Sgeathe Gásge, Síhannachas, supernatural legends and so on, along with folk custom and popular belief. But the landscape of tradition is much broader than that, and memories of local and national historical events, as recounted by ordinary people, also comprise a large and an important element of the collections here at the National Folklore Collection in University College Dublin. A series of over 700 tape-recorded interviews made with Dublin people in 1979 to 1980 contained vivid contemporary accounts of the 1916 Easter Rising, the 1919 to 1921 Irish War of Independence, and of the events leading to the Irish Civil War. So, and it's these um, topics that we're going to explore today. You're welcome to episode 34 of Blurini Bell the podcast from the National Folklore Collection. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague here at the NFC, Abba van der Heide, who listeners may remember from episode 26 of Blurini, which involved discussion around Abba's research concerning seals in folk tradition. Fault Abba. <laughs> it's nice to be back. Happy out. So, today, um, like I mentioned, we're going to look at material concerning the Irish War of Independence we're going to play lots of audio that you've been working on, these kind of tape recordings. And we're, we're doing that really because as the occasion. The 6th of December 2021 marks the 100-year anniversary of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. The events leading up to the sign, signing of the Treaty were marked by hundreds of years of conflict and violence. And Ireland has had a very long, complex and often tumultuous history with its nearest neighbour, Britain, with many invasions, wars, colonisations, confiscations, battles, burnings and sieges taking place here for over 800 years the Anglo-Norman invasion of 1169, the failed revolt of Silicon Thomas in 1534, the ruling of the island by uh, England's monarchs with the creation of the Kingdom of Ireland in 1542, the Nine Years War of 1594 to 1603, the Ulster Plantation in 1609, land confiscations under the Act of Settlement in 1652, the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, the Rising of 1798, the Act of Union in 1801 which saw Ireland ruled directly from London, to name a few.
1: Yep. To name but a few.
0: Yes. And so, in the nineteenth century, in particular, in Ireland was a period of great disturbance and upheaval. So we have the Great Famine of eighteen forty-five to eighteen fifty-two, which led to the deaths of millions through starvation and disease, while millions more emigrated for Britain and the New World of the Americas. And this event kind of. It might be seen as marking a great fault line in the Irish psyche, so the island's population being halved by the 1890s, which is kind of incredible to think, really. The 19th century also saw the emergence of nationalist and separatist groups, such as the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which strove for an Irish Republic, and its aims had melded and meshed with the artistic and cultural movement that was the Gaelic revival. And the figures in the revival looked to our native arts, literature, music, poetry and sports as a source of national revivification and pride. Uh, at the same time as well, we saw the rise of the Land League under Parnell and Dabbit, which strove to abolish landlordism in Ireland and to assist the plight of poor tenant farmers. The Irish Home Rule movement gathered strength in the late 19th, late 19th and early 20th centuries, being discussed in the British Parliament. And In 1905, Arthur Griffith established Sinn, Sinn Féin, which means ourselves alone or we ourselves, uh, which strove for the establishment of a parliament in Dublin. Amongst the Protestant majority in Ulster, however, Home Rule and separation from the Union with Britain was strongly opposed, and they believed that Home Rule meant Rome Rule, i.e. that the Catholic Church would rule the country. In 1912, the Ulster Covenant was signed. In 1913, the Ulster Volunteers were formed. The Irish Volunteers were formed in response, and the country was on the brink of civil war. The Home Rule Bill passed through British Parliament in 1914, but the outbreak of the First World War uh, saw its implementation suspended as the Great War rolled on. Huge numbers of Irish volunteers signed up to fight in the British Army in the First World War. Others stayed behind to secretly plot the rising, the Easter Rising of 1916. The leaders uh, then signed, the leaders of the Rising signed the Proclamation of Independence. They captured key strategic points around Dublin. A conflict, enormous conflict broke out across the city and Dublin was shelled by British forces and portions of the inner city were razed to the ground and many civilians were killed. The leaders surrendered and were executed in May of 1916. And while the Easter Rising wasn't a popular revolt as such, the response of the British, along with the threat of Irish conscription into World War I, led to a sort of a hardening of attitudes and the rising sentiment and sympathies behind the martyred leaders of the Rising. So many of those who had fought in the Rising were imprisoned in Frangough in Wales one of whom was the Corkman, Michael Collins, who we'll hear of later on throughout these recordings. Collins rose to lead rebel forces and engage crown forces and their outposts, patrols and barracks in guerrilla warfare and ambushes and raids. In 1918, Sinn Féin won a landslide victory in Ireland, but instead of taking their seats in Westminster, they held on January 21st, 1919, the first meeting of Dahl Éireann, which took place at Dublin's Mansion House, where an independent Irish Republic was declared. Have you seen the photograph of that? No, I haven't. It's amazing. There's an amazing picture of them all sitting. Owen McNail is there. Oh. So Owen McNeill is the great kind of um, Celtic studies scholar. His he was also the father of the great Maura McNail who worked here at the Arts Folklore Commission. She was the worked at the in the archive and was the author of um, the Festival of Lunacy. But it's an, an incredible photograph of these kind of luminaries, basically. But oh, they're yeah, all kind it. of gathered around. check it, you can see it online. It was on January twenty-first, nineteen nineteen. The same day in Beg in Tipperary, in Munster, Irish Volunteers ambushed and killed the uh, a Royal Irish Constabulary an OIC patrol and took all their weapons. It was a lot of gelignite, and with this ambush, the first shots of the Irish War of Independence have been fired. Um, so, this is a kind of incredibly brief uh, overview or context to some of what you're what you're going to hear. Um, so we're going to play maybe about ten or twelve recordings. How did you come to work with these initially?
1: So, a long time ago at this point, it feels like. But when I was still a student uh, in the Masters of Irish Folklore and Ethnology. Many moons uh, ago. Many moons ago at this point. I was doing a three-week internship here in the National Folklore Collection. And our director, Dr. Christo McCorhag, suggested, in light of the um, decade of centenaries and of the commemorations Mm -hmm. that were. To come at that point, um, that I begin to comb through uh, material from uh, the Urban Folklore Project mm. to search for any mention of the War of Independence, of Black and Tans, of um, anything relevant to the time period of 1919, 1920, 1921, mm. so that. We could use them later, mm-hmm. as it happens. It is currently later, <laughs> um, and we've re- returned to them kind of periodically over the last one or two years. But um, as you mentioned earlier, we're we're fast approaching uh, December sixth, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. yeah, December sixth, the um, hundred year anniversary of the signing of the Anglo Irish Treaty. Um, so we wanted to. Mark, Mark, Mark that occasion with, um, by sharing some of these really fascinating pieces with you.
0: They are they are fascinating, and it's the same. I had done something similar around the centenary of the nineteen sixteen Easter Rising. Exactly. Um, and this is something we were chatting about yesterday, in the context of kind of, sometimes the archival collections that we come to work with here, for the purposes of either kind of exhibitions or presentations or anniversaries and dates and things like that. They're not necessarily. Say topics that I would have been immediately drawn to, say, in the context of like looking at military history or something like that. It wasn't a topic that I wanted to like. Oh, I must. I was always interested more in, I don't know, material regarding the other world and kind of um, different aspects of popular belief and custom and narratives and so on. But so when I when I got a list of these recordings from nineteen sixteen, and they've been transcribed and uploaded. If you go to ucd.ie forward slash folklore forward slash Nineteen sixteen. You'll be brought to a website with the transcriptions and the audio. But the top. of the time I was done with it, I just, I was just utterly gripped and fascinated mm-hmm. by these recordings because, unlike, I suppose this is this is the this is the one of the, the the characteristics of the traditional archive. Unlike the formal, say, archival records that might be found concerning military history or combatants or belligerents or who was where and what are the official records of the movements of troops and so on. What you get in these recordings are accounts of the everyday ordinary people who get caught up often in, in these um, huge historical events. So again, it's the popular view. It's what is the ordinary man or woman on the street's perspective of what happened. In the context of the 1916 recordings, it's like there's one occasion where um, a woman is taking a neighbor's baby for a walk in the pram and she gets wrapped up yes, in the whole thing. I remember that one. Yeah. Um, so even in, in items that you're maybe not necessarily drawn to, immediately out of your own personal interests, often by the time you've worked with them they offer these fascinating insights
1: yeah i felt the same working with this there are so many so many interviews that are just fascinating from beginning to end and mm. um, that it was difficult to narrow them down in pick the so end well. to pick these kind of short edited clips but
0: Um, And what is the, I don't know, it's worth maybe explaining a bit to people who aren't aware, what was the Urban Folklore Project?
1: Yeah, now, the Urban Folklore Project was a really, a wonderful scheme. It took place from 1979 to 1980, um, and it was funded by FOSS as an employment scheme for graduate students at the time, Mm. um, due to the economic depression. Yeah, Um, yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of many. One, yes. Um, but um, Dr. or Professor Seamus O'Kane was the um, director of the scheme, and then I think there was uh, about fifteen students employed, graduate students employed under the scheme. Five of them were graduates of the Department of Irish Folklore, mm. and then ten from other uh, various academic uh, backgrounds. And mm-hmm. um, the five who were in who were had a background in Irish folklore, they were kind of given a role of supervisor and uh, were involved in training the other the other students in interviewing skills, mm-hmm. those kinds of things that would be needed. And they also were given the task of adapting uh, the Handbook of Irish Folklore by mm. Seán O'Sullivan for these purposes.
0: For use in an urban context. That's exactly. Fascinating. I did not know that. Right. So they had to kind of adapt the subjects and the... Con- and the...
1: Exactly. Because, I mean, the handbook is an amazing resource and we, we draw on it I would say every day yeah, here yeah. Um, it really works as a key to um, the, the whole archive, archive
0: yeah.
1: but may not be totally ready for
0: an, an, urban, kind an of context, urban context that's full of amazing biases so Handbook of Irish Folklore that's the book that this the system here in the traditional archive all the subject topics and, and so on is devised is based but in it you have these amazing quotes from there's, there's a foreword to the to the um, uh, to the book by de larga, Seamus of de larga who was the the founder of the irish folklore commission and the folklore and society and the irish folklore institute kind of a bit of a genius but here's a quote from the handbook and from his introductory note to it he says the entire fabric of irish rural civilization so well portrayed in the present volume is today as in the past beset by many enemies here as elsewhere the shoddy imported culture of the towns pushes back the frontiers of the indigenous homespun culture of the countryside and the ancient courtesies and traditional ways of thought and behaviour tend to disappear before the destroying breath of the spirit of the age. <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah. It's a sandwich altogether. Um, but what you see, and I suppose what's, what's part and parcel really of the work of the commission is a really strong rural bias. Um, you have even in, in O'Sullivan's instructions to collectors, he says, so the main purpose of this book is to serve as a guide for collectors of Irish oral tradition. There are very few people living in Ireland who are not tradition bearers to some extent, even city and town-born individuals possess traditional information concerning the ways and doings of those about them. It is in country districts, however, that information is to be obtained in the greatest abundance. So, that's where the commission focused its efforts for the earliest kind of or earlier phases of its of its inception. And o'cahan had recognised this kind of blind spot, this gap in the collection, and so he instituted the urban folklore project specifically to focus on and interview people in inner-city Dublin, in mm-hmm. urban areas, and also inner-city urban uh, parts of Cork and so on, to look at life, customs, practices, traditions of urban city dwellers. And it's it, there are over 700 tape recordings uh, yes. conducted as part. It's a fascinating, fantastic co- yep. collection.
1: And not only recordings, but also photographs. photographs There's so yes, good many point. photographs. Thousands of photographs, yeah. Um, a lot of them are available on ducas.ie, so do go have a look. Mm. Um, But photographs of the city kind of before really big changes came into before the city before became one joint hotel yeah <laughs> so. yeah the photographs really are worth looking at Um, they took videos of school children playing games mm. and then i think also of mummers as well mm-hmm. um in swords
0: yeah there's um, amazing sounds even market sounds um, yes yeah yeah um, and children's game sounds yeah. and all the sort of and and footage of of, of kids playing and um, so just I suppose so that's the context of the collection that we're, that you're going to hear this. that we're going to kind of go through these, these accounts they were recorded from people in 1979 mm-hmm. and 1980 but many of those people either took part in the Easter Rising or took part in the War of Independence or took part in the Civil War or were simply bore witness to Parts of the Easter Rising, parts of the War of Independence and parts of the Civil War. And for this episode, we are focusing on accounts concerning the War of Independence. <laughs> so is there any particular piece that you want to, to look at to start? To kind of to start. To off? begin?
1: Um, I thought we would begin with Tom Merrigan as he talks about one of the earlier instances in the, the War of Independence. He talks about. He describes the raid that his company made on the Collinstown Aerodrome in 1919, so the place where Dublin Airport is today. So, Tom Merrigan is from Drimna mm-hmm. uh, in, in Dublin. The audio, I don't know what is happening at the beginning of the audio, but it's very soft. Oh, it's um, kind of
0: bad. It's poor quality at the start, so yeah.
1: I presume after 20 seconds, maybe the mic gets moved closer Shoved to him or the something space. like that. Um, so, it does get clearer after that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, shall we give him
2: a listen? I'm the volunteers up to 1936. Right. In 1919 we made a raid on the Collinstown Aerodrome, right. that's where Collinstown is now, the, right. the airport there. Right. On that particular occasion, the, the British were building an airport there for themselves, a military airport. Right. Right. There was a guard of 21 British troops on it, you know. But in any case, the raid was trying to take place about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, they had everything worked out, where the guard was placed, where the the uh, sentries were. And all that time, time, they were changed and all that. Right. And they said around 11 o'clock at night was the right time to attack. But right. <coughs> on the way out to the yard, all the cars were all down. Right. The result was that we didn't arrive there until about 2 in the morning right. instead of 11 at night. The guardroom was sort of an long affair. And the sentry was supposed to be walking up and down outside, inside of a war compartment, you know. And there was another building on this side here, about five or six yards away from the guardroom. And we were able to make our way up to that. And my, my job that time was, I had an uncle in the British Army and he was home on leave and he had a khaki uniform and I got around to that khaki uniform dressed up and I was to take the rifle when the sentry was knocked out (laughs) take his place and we got to the the corner of the building where we had guard him under observation and we were just peeping around the corner to see the sentry walking up and down we were there for about a quarter of an hour, and there was no sentry. There was no sign of a sentry at all. So there was a hurry combat between Paddy Hullahan and Padda Bresa, and they decided to rush the guard room. Now, there was two doors in the guard, and there was one here and one opposite on the far side. But they decided to to rush them both. Anyway, we did that rushed the guard room from both sides and got in and there was no sentry at all, they were all asleep on the floor, <laughs> complete guard was to see, anyway our hardest job was to wake them up and tie them up, I took all the rifles, 72 rifles and all that equipment and ammunition we could lay our hands on, it was all taken. Of course, needless to say, they, they were all sacked the next day. Right. And the aerodrome was the British Army aerodrome was lying there for years, right. and they never did any more with it, but until the airport took it over, Collinstown it was then. Right. Anyway, we got away with it so successfully.
3: What year was that again. That was nineteen
2: nineteen, around March nineteen nineteen, I
0: thought. So that's Tom Merrigan there from from um, Brandon Road and a Chant to Jared Brady in uh, nineteen eighty, and he's talking about their engagement in nineteen nineteen at Collins Aerodrome. Um, and you've another piece from Tom Merrigan yeah, here. Yeah,
1: we just he speaks about he had three sisters and they were in and a man and so he speaks about um some of the roles that they played within. Common
0: and Common the man was was a women's organisation basically. That's right. Um, and they were extremely active at this time as well. Afterwards, did you have any brothers or anybody that got
2: involved? The three sisters. They were all arrested. Yeah. Different times. They were all in Common the man, You know.
3: Right. Um, what type of work did would they do in the Common?
2: Common the man. Mm. Oh, they, they used to to do propaganda work mostly. And they carry guns for yeah. you. They showed up somewhere. They'd be convenient and you just pass them over and they'd bring them back to the dumps and that. Right. And, and then of course, they knew first aid. Right. And there were dab hands of paint and slogans on the lippy wall and right. different other buildings around the city, usual thing you see nowadays. Right. Was there a wide range in ages in the women and come the man, Or were they... A lot of young people. No, and yeah. no, there was a lot of young people in it. Mm. Mm. Then there was a lot of the younger. They used to call Clanny Gale. Mm. They were younger. And they used to, some of them used to come to Cunhamon mm. as they grew up, you know.
0: A lot of gun running and stuff. Like this was was part of the 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 work of coming them on. Yeah. Um. And I suppose the tra- their training, like they, had, you know, because guerrilla warfare, that was how this this kind of played out. Really, it wasn't in in kind of open war against the might of the British army. It was guerrilla warfare. It was people melting back into the civilian landscape in this kind of impossible task. I suppose to try mm. and to try and really find or point to the enemy, basically, which involved many then then kind of civilian casualties in ways as well and uh, reprisals and so on that we'll see later especially from the auxiliaries and the black and towns and so on Um, what's the next piece that you have to to
1: well actually since how you just mentioned the idea of of weapons and guerrilla warfare we might actually go straight to uh, Seamus Murray here so um, again he was recorded in 1980 but he talks a little bit about how the IRA sourced their weapons and again uh, a lot of them came from the British Army and he explains he goes into more detail about that um, but also he he explains as to why some weapons were more useful to others outside the city.
4: They go around here, if anyone brought in munitions, you know, loyalists to the crowd right. like this. they right. you were know, like that. And when that fellow's coming home from France, bringing home the rifle. Mm. And this is how we c- got in touch with these. The numerous raid made on different barracks and things like that mm. in place, you see and started to arm ourselves, with their weapons, mm. see, like that. That kept going on continuously,
3: like that. Where would you leave the weapons when you got them from police? Where would I leave what? The weapons that you collected in that way.
4: So would wep- oh, would the, c- c- the company quartermaster would be? Mm. He'd have them. Then you, you paid for your own rifle. You paid your weekly subscriptions, mm. you see. You bought your own uniform. Well, I'd look at my books and see who would, who would have paid the most mm. money. i know they come to my house. Mm. Might come with a shovel, might come with a spade. Mm. And put it on that, leave the house with it. You know, mm. the rifle there. Uh, never took them a son. You couldn't take the... You couldn't take the butts off of the house rifles. They were too long, you know. But there wasn't such a terrible lot of them, you see. But uh, they didn't, in flight, on one occasion another came out that all rifles and all of that mm. was to be evacuated from the city. They were of no use in the city for guerrilla warfare,
3: because
4: mm. you couldn't carry a rifle as a You know, a fella there, they were like, you and me carrying kind a of rifle, you'd be noticed at once. Yeah. The police, and boys and all of that. The they were only useful to the men on the run. Mm.
3: The guns that the cycle battalion collected they were given to the quartermaster were they
4: now, now, now you see they start building up mm. but they hadn't much in it when i went into it you see now i didn't hold anything and you know, it was just one of the two men of my company the man you see but then you see the it started to get bigger then you know and then they'd go around to different houses mm. if they had was arms they'd just go in and Pretend they were from the British forces, and they were getting the, any of those rifles at all, mm. and that uh, they didn't want them to fall into the hands of the IRA. Mm. And a lot of those things were handed over, Most trouble, just handed over. Then right. our fellows were armed with the like of this, right. armed themselves like that. Mm. But I wasn't that. I was put on then onto munitions. I was this I begun then. I used to go to a sh- I used to go to a shop in Parnell Street, in the corner Denmark Street. Mm. Coogan's was the name. A lot of them, I don't know whether they knew that I was used to. Well, I'd go in there and i get a box of grenades. I think it was a box of sweets. Mm. But there were empty grenades, nothing in them. Mm. I'd bring them to Djendelein. Mm. And then, of course, the men who knew how to do this, mm. you know, making up grenades. Because at first there were tin cans and things like that, you see. That was the difficulty.
0: That was fascinating listening to that and again even the sense of like that it's not open war that it's a kind of you have this mm-hmm. illusion of normality on the street and so as such rifles are nearly useless as he says except for, the, for except for, you know, those who were on the run because you'll be spied and seen immediately yeah. by just some lad going down the road with a rifle yeah. and yet they needed to arm themselves. Yeah. I remember in, in material regarding the 1916, um, uh, the, the rising then, the description of... Uh, rifles or weapon guns being being hidden on the clotheslines. Oh. And put out between streets so you know they'd have a clothesline between buildings. Yes. And they would be put out on the lines with shirts over them. And so if oh, there was gosh. a raid in the yeah. house that they'd be and then you get a sense again. So he's going into this sweet shop and he's buying these kind of grenade casings and then he's walking with this his box of sweets to mm. all appearances to some other part of the city where men know how to, you know, fill those grenades and yeah. make them kind of viable or live or whatever. So there's a kind of network across the city that's operating under the very watchful eye of the police and spies everywhere. And intelligence had a huge part, I suppose, to play in, in the War of Independence from both sides, like from, from double agents and spies and so mm-hmm. on. The Dublin Metropolitan Police had the... Um, there was like a clothes division, the G-Men, who were wandering around, and so they'd be tracing the, the movements and so on of volunteers. Then in the castle, in Dublin Castle, you had Ned Broy as a double agent who was... Um, copying all the files mm. that was held in the volunteers yeah. and who allowed Michael Collins in to Dublin Castle overnight to go through all the files they had to see what they had on them all mm. so this idea of like intelligence and counterintelligence and spying and who's who and who's defecting and who, and being unable as well to engage in this open warfare but to have to have this clandestine kind of um, approach playing itself out across parts of the city that we all know it. yeah, it's just we all crazy it. yeah. crazy um what's what else what's the next kind of part that you piece that you wanted to, to go through?
1: I wish in a way that I kept somebody else because you just led straight into what they talked about. But um I thought we'd finish up this kind of um segment. A segment on preparing for war and kind of the actions they took to um
0: but Treya, how did they how did they even train? Like again, you can't just be out a load of lads in the field, you know, what are you doing marching up and down the <laughs> lines? Like you know, how did they do that?
1: Yeah, so this is what Frank Sherwin talks about. Um again he's recorded by Gerard Brady um in nineteen eighty, but he talks about some of the um training practices of the IRA, hmm. um, and his own training as a signaller. So he says he doesn't they didn't actually use much of that in the end.
3: Okay. Um, what type of training would you have in the Fiend or the IRA? Would you practice regularly or would it be a set training? During
5: during the whole period of the of the of the Tan War we'd we'd go through army foot drill, you know, and uh rifle drill, you know, and uh we'd we'd be lectured on the mechanism of guns and one thing like that. And of course I was a signaler. Do the the, the simple as you remember that war of independence period i was attached to the ira signal class and uh, i was a signaler at, at, at all times yes
3: what would a signaler do
5: well signal, a signaler practices signalling the, the semi fly with the hands and the the flags and and the buzzer we'd, we'd practice always to give information Well, out in the field, uh, you'd give information with like flashing lamps of one thing or the other. Actually, very little of that was required, but we practiced it just in case, just the same.
3: Um, for guns and that, do you know where you'd um, get your supply of guns from? Or if you needed one when we are going out in the raid, would you have your own one or be given it by someone, And ammunition?
5: Well, there wasn't a whole lot of guns. And of course not, every, not everyone was active, you see. There was only small squads active, and very often we handed one another the same gun. Uh, the FINA had a small supply. When I was arrested, I, was, I, I had five revolvers in, in Patrick state and a whole lot of assorted ammunition.
0: So yeah, I suppose you just get the impression of this, like like I was saying, this clandestine network trying to operate kind of in plain sight, but hidden in plain sight.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: yeah. And to try and amass these forces and then these small squads that carry out these sudden strikes, sudden raids where they're stealing weapons of, of yeah. British forces, weapons of Crown forces and using their own weapons against them. Exactly. And this is yeah. something that was, that was I mean, that wasn't just taking part in Dublin. Like There was a huge, huge amount of engagements, especially in Munster and Kerry and in Cork mm. um, during the War of Independence. And I think you have a piece Yes. That that describes that.
1: So, this is our. We're going to hop out of Dublin for a second. Um, And it's really great actually that we have this piece because we're going to hear from uh, Covenant Horgan, who was, um, at the time of the word of independence, he lived in Cork City. But by the time of the the Urban Folklore Project uh, in 1979, 1980, he's the proprietor of the Lansdowne Hotel on Pembroke Road so it's it's wonderful that we have him because we have then, a, a small insight into somewhere else outside of the city but he's a fascinating person mm-hmm. i could have included so much of interv- of his interview, his interview is fantastic, if yeah. um, if i wanted to so he was he was quite young at the at the time of the the war of independence he joined nafina which were a younger kind of boy scouts mm-hmm. essentially but they often fed into the ira mm-hmm. um later so he joined nafina in 1918 at 11 years of age which would make him only he's 11 12 13 maybe around during the years of the word of independence but his his whole family were involved in the rep- republican movement of, in some way or another and two of his older brothers were um, members of the ira mm. the interview includes so many interesting things so um he talks about how uh, as a teenager he was caught out after curfew and whipped by the the black and tans mm. um he was saved from execution by uh an RIC officer um uh, i can't it's been a while since i've heard that clip but i believe they either mistook him from one of, one of his older brothers but um in this clip he i mean he talks about the burning of cork and how his, some of his house was uh burnt in uh, on that night as well mm.
0: It's it's worth noting as uh when you're mentioning the black and tans or and, and you hear or if you hear reference to the auxies and so for people mm. who don't know, this is kind of an auxiliary force who were, who were brought in, uh, to kind of to deal with the situation basically that was unfolding, and who have entered into Irish consciousness I guess in total infamy and hatred I think it's fair to say exactly. in popular tradition as a force who either killed civilians or engaged in. Say reprisals for raids against themselves or the royal irish constabulary by attacking civilians or burning their homes or burning towns like babrigan and cork and things like this and so they're they're much despised i think and they've entered a certain kind of they hold a certain resonance or place in the irish psyche even in the context of this episode i was i was saying to you before we started recording i was going to Mm -hmm. pick out some songs maybe to play uh, to deal with this part of the Mm -hmm. this phase of irish history and decided against it, actually, because yeah. they're so um, kind of just, I suppose, they just reflect the strength of emotion and opinion yeah. about that period in particular. And I thought, I will refrain. But it just, I, I guess it what, what that shows even is just the strength of force and the kind of the fear and the sense of dread and how they were despised mm-hmm. by the populace often. Yes. Um, but in this description, you have a description of the burning of, of the city of Cork was was yeah burnt um, as a reprisal
1: yes exactly
0: by the black and tan so here's Commandant Horgan
6: during the burning of Cork we were burned now too they burned a whole lot of um, uh, they burned an awful lot of places but funny enough the thing that annoyed us more um, than anything else annoyed me and annoyed my brother Ned um, was uh, an old jennet, which had been tied, a white jennet that we had all had learned to, to ride on, you know, was tied in the stable and when it went on fire the poor thing was burned to death. And the Tans on another occasion they shot uh, a Grand Airedale dog that we had, you know. And you know, they funny how little things like Your that. House the out house was marked out by them Oh, it was marked out by them, yes. And my father was on a on a raid, who was a peaceful man really. My mother was and she I suppose she had Taking on some of the genes from from her from her father, you know she was tough, but she had a rather dreadful time because she you know we were raided every night like more most of the houses co- at that time anybody in the national movement were raided indeed some suffered even more than we did you know but um, it, it was uh, I suppose interrupted. Yeah. quite a bit.
5: Mm-hmm. W- where was your house now? Exactly? In
6: Glashine Road. And it
5: was burnt out the
6: night of uh, the Cork Well, Cork. It, it it wasn't completely burnt out uh, burnt out, but the whole stables around it and part of it was burned. The actual night of the famous burning? The Cork night of burning. the Cork burning, yeah. And
5: were there many other uh, sort of Republican houses burnt?
6: There were site? quite a number of houses yeah. burned out that night.
5: So it wasn't just uh, Patrick Street and uh, the City
6: Hall? Oh no, there were there were the several place. other places. And if you know, a uh, raid started everywhere. You know, because as you know, the Black and Tans of the Ogsies went mad that night. They were all pretty well, well, I'd say, drunk. They must have been because that that was a dreadful thing. The burning of Cork it was like the burning of Bal Balbriggan. The same type of mentality of the people who did that in Balbriggan. We had them in Cork. You know.
5: Do you remember that night?
6: Uh, I do, well, I remember that night all right, because that was the night that they, my, my father uh, was trying to protect my sisters, uh, well in the bedroom when, when we were raided, and they came in, and um, at that time too, by the way, in Cork, you had to have the names of all the occupants on the back of the door, and if anybody was missing you had to say where he was, and of course. my brother Ned was missing most of the time and my eldest brother Jim was missing too Uh, and my brother my father when they came to the house he he tried to protect my sisters give them a chance of getting up and putting some clothes on them and they threw him down the stairs and uh, he was an oldish man at that time you know. Uh, he was very badly injured his knee was he was a crippler for a hell of a long time afterwards as a result of that.
0: I thought it was fascinating where he describes that you had to have the list of names on the mm. back of the front door of the house so that if you were raided or if, if somebody called if some of the forces called in, that you had to be able to account for everybody in the house. And exactly. if somebody was missing, you had to be able to account for their whereabouts.
1: Explain where they were.
0: Explain where the hell they were, mm. which is kind of a slightly chilling thing, yeah. So there's um but anyway, in that section I suppose Commandant and Horgan gives a certain sense of the actions of, of the Black and Tans and how they were you know, popularly regarded.
1: Exactly and um, it's a good transition because the next couple of, of pieces are going to speak about the Black and Tans, and some of them are I think up until now we've, we've only heard from people who were involved in military action directly but um, obviously the Black and Tans, uh, they had such an effect on
0: Civilian, population. civilian
1: populations as well so it's good to have a mix of people speaking about them. So we'll go to Julia Morden first so uh, she's fantastic I think, I really love yeah, yeah. listening to Julia Morden Um, she was from um, Stella Gardens in Ringsend and what I love about you won't hear this part in the recording but the full interview that she does, it begins with um, the collector and uh, the other people who are clearly in the room encouraging her to tell ghost stories first. So she, she does tell a couple of ghost stories about figures who were seen in Ring's End, mm. but um, I think her narrative talent then does also lend itself to her own kind Personal of memories. Exactly. So yes, she talks about two incidents involving the Black and Tans. One she remembers herself and one uh, of a close uh, family member.
7: Well, this night we were all in bed. And the next, the door was bent with the butts of rifles. Yeah. My father, God, who would that be? Blackened tans. I often told them about it. We had a lovely lot of hens. They let the hens out, searched the hen house. They searched every part of the place. Mm. Could find nothing. So my father said you you're, you're frightening the life out of the poor hands. Be dad says if you don't go out of the way, he says he I'll frighten the life out of you. He threatened me poor father. And my father went to go he was tall, he went to go bed and dog me mother, Oh Jack Butler, you do, they'll riddle you. But our place was torn asunder with them.
5: Were they here for long?
7: Well oh, here for a good while. Were they? But I can give you a better one about them. Go on then. It was, my niece's father in law, go on, for God's sake, eat a biscuit. was very fond of the beer. And Mrs. Burden had a son, served in the British Navy, and she would a pension for him, poor Ned. Mm. <laughs> this night he was coming home, curfew, mm. and the hell I'm up under the arch. And he said, Why is all running from one individual? And he stood that way in the alley and he said, Well, i sing a little song for you. And I stood. He said, Song that song, Where would the English Army be if it wasn't for Paddy's Land?
4: What's that? They- Do you know the rest of the words of it?
7: They say no Irish need apply, that's a thing that I can't understand. But where would the English army be if it wasn't for Paddy's land? And Mrs. Burton's down on her knees. The old, the old bastard she was calling her. Me poor pension be stopped. I'll be hungry. But however, the officer was very nice. He said, come on, me dear man, before someone gets nasty with you. So there was a woman in the corner house and her and her husband, our children was in bed, knelt in that kitchen. Children was asleep upstairs. She knelt in our bed in the kitchen, her and her said the rose, we were expecting to hear maybe shot. Yeah, she's wonderful. And again, I mean
1: we come back to this idea of the the British Army again that this woman had a pension from the British Army and mm. she was like don't interfere with it I, I still need the money mm-hmm.
0: is there <laughs> another piece that you were you you wanted to play just while that was playing we, there
1: yeah we're rounding off kind of our segment about the Black and Tans here but we thought we'd play um, a clip from Lieutenant Co- Colonel Manners O'Connell Fitzsimons. he features on two things so he's on the 1916 site do have a look for him there and then he's also in your, the podcast with
0: um, oh on World for... War
1: I yes exactly yeah, yeah, so he features there too and he's fascinating uh, really but in this clip um, when he was recorded he was uh, a retired British Army officer and he wasn't really um, he wasn't in Ireland for most of the period of the War of Independence so mm. it's only he speaks about kind of his one experience of the War of Independence from
0: Anglo Irish perspective, exactly. whatever. Exactly. But it's interesting with him, he he, he in in this context of this Anglo Irish background, but in the context of nineteen sixteen and the executions, he talked about the wicked stupidity of the English mm. in, in as far as the executions are concerned. He was saying like, you know, they should have just given these lads thrashing and let them <laughs> out kind of thing. But he has this hilarious kind of manner about him. But yeah, an interesting an interesting figure.
5: You weren't stationed in Ireland at all during the Black
8: and Tans? And I was posted to the depot in 1919, down in Burr. And the tour of, at a depot was only 18 months. 18 months afterwards, I went back to the battalion in Colchester. And all I know of interest about the Black and Tans is there is a set of bastards, a whole lot of them, as we used to call them, a shite hawk is a form of vulture that lives on muck. You will find them in Egypt and India, and the blackened hands are rather like that. All I know about them is that uh, before the depot closed, they closed them. They said they are so stupid that the English people, with all this rumpus going on, the depots of the Irish regiments were still at work, and. Things were beginning to get hot up, hotted up in in and um, around that part of the world. But still, they stayed on, and we did have to go out and do a couple of patrols, went out on bicycles, just told go on patrol. And um, Charlie Harmon, who was Colonel Harmon was commanding, he wasn't interested in it at all. Too silly. Anyway, one officer, a sergeant, and ten men, uh, after Ross came back. No proper order or anything like that. Quite disinterested. But afterwards, after I'd gone, and just before the depots were closed and transferred to England, a troop or a crowd of black and tans arrived in Bourne and started beating up the town. Uh, There was no telephone between the barracks and the police down there. But the old superintendent there put two of his men on bicycles and sent them on a circuitous route round the back up to where, Crinkle well, village where the barracks were imploring Charlie Harmon to send some soldiers down and clear them out. Harmon didn't bother about that. He jumped into his car, took one man with him, went down went straight to the police barracks the help of the Police, they tracked down the fellow who was commanding this crowd uh, in the main street. Harmon said, told who he was, How many men have you got here? The fellow told him, I don't know what it was, 10 or 20 or something like that. Charlie Harmon said, I'll give you half an hour to get your men out of this town. I'm taking the evening train now up to the castle and I'm going to report you. And what's the name of your second in command? I heard this from Charlie afterwards, Said so the fellow told him. He then came back to barracks, sent a small patrol of men down, the corporal in charge, with a note in case they were stopped with the blackened hands, anyway they'd cleared off. Harmon harman went up to Dublin that night, next morning he went to the police headquarters and the commander-in-chief, our friend, that I told you about before. And uh, the upshot of it was <coughs> that the commander of this force and his second-in-command were dismissed, at least they were sent back to England. But they didn't have time to do any damage, and most of them were tight. And that's all I know about them, anyway. Well, if I,
5: uh, what type of men joined the Black and Tans? I don't know. What was different
8: between... Them? An awful, an awful, I gather they were an awful lot of them, a fellows who were discharged, couldn't get work. Another lot of them, they were discharged and unhappy. Uh, they were ready to do anything. And untrained. Why
5: were they different to the regular troops? More? Because they'd
0: never had any training and discipline knocked into them. Having used the term shitehawk many times, I've never <laughs> been privy to a formal definition of it, uh, such as was given by Colonel Maris O'Connell. Fitzsimons there, total legend. Um, shitehawks living in Egypt and India, apparently. Yeah you Yeah. A, a kind of muck-eating vulture. You heard it here first. Fascinating insight and even again the description of the which I find I don't know why it is it's just something slightly chilling when he describes the um not just the kind of the state of the black and tans and so on but the his commanding officer is saying that he's going to get the, he's getting the train up to the castle yeah and the castle. image of the castle kind of always looms large in the mind at this period which was the center of really administrative kind of mm. british rule and power in ireland it's kind of Large, like domineering kind of place where terrible things would have happened. Yes. Terrible, terrible things would happen. People being murdered and tortured and so on, and being brought into the castle at all hours of the night. So when I hear a reference kind of to the castle mm-hmm. and someone going up there and that's and you know in those corridors and so on, it's quite um yeah, it's quite chilling in a way. Um, but that was Colonel O'Connor Simons. What's the next piece? What What else? Do we so have?
1: now we'll go to a, a much younger person, Liam Carey. He he's speaking about his his family and their... Um, associations
9: with the Republican movement. Well, I suppose I ought to tell you about a, a couple of uncles. Uh, Jim Carrey was one of the Twelve Apostles, uh, the bodyguards of Michael Collins, handpicked for the cold bloodedness. Um, I never found him cold blooded. He was an extraordinarily kind man, very passive person, uh, really nice man. Um, How do you mean he was handpicked? Who picked them? Michael Collins did. Mm. Um, he picked twelve during the Bloody Sunday in in. 1920, uh, I hope I got the dates correct, I probably haven't they wiped out the uh, Coral Gang which is the British Secret Service operatives who were operating in, in Dublin to uh, counter the Irish Republican Army presence and uh, Collins picked a group of people to uh, go into boarding houses and wipe clean the colonels lieutenants, captains majors um, of British Army presence in 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 the S- southern Ireland and Dublin, clean, which they duly did. Um, there's one particular case that's been written about. My uncle was involved in. Uh, in Baggett Street, he uh, went into a house and, they uh, busted in the door. He told me this himself, and uh, the major was in bed with his wife, who was very very pregnant, and told him he was going to die. And the uh, major said, "Well, please not in front of my wife." So they took him out into the hallway and uh, finished it and uh, the wife's baby was born a week later, still born. It hung on my uncle's mind for 15, 20 years. Eventually it uh, got to the stage where he tried to commit suicide and they locked him up in Grange Garment for 10 years. Um, with A private room and so on and so forth, which he, I'm sure, merited. He used to escape on Easter and Christmas they never found out how he or escaped. And uh, he'd come up to my mother, my grandmother, and uh, they hid him until, eventually, the guard, would come around and want to take him back.
0: But uh, that's Liam Carey and...
1: I mean, it, it leads into another account from an older man who, was, who did actually take part in Bloody Sunday, which Liam Carey mentioned just there. Bloody Sunday was an event where the Black and Tans arrived at a a match in Crow Park between Dublin and Tipperary. Gaelic football match. Wasn't a Gaelic it? football match. And proceeded to Fight, shoot at the shoot crowd, the shoot crowd. at everybody. And this kind of awful awful event was as a reprisal for the shooting of the Cairo Gang that had taken place, I think earlier that That's morning. That's
0: what Liam Carey mentions, yeah. Exactly. Reprisal for their murder. So
1: Patrick Galvin, this next speaker, is going to speak a little bit about the role of his battalion being on scout duty mm-hmm. uh, around the morning of. Bloody the Sunday.
10: events of Bloody Sunday. Uh, now in, in our area, now in our area it was mostly, it was done of course, you I mean to say, and that was uh, Upper Mount Street. Yeah. It was mostly in Upper Mount Street, you see, they, they, those people, uh, those people uh, uh, were stopping, do you see? Mm. And it was uh, it was there, of course, I mean to say, that uh, uh, our battalion, the third battalion, of course, I mean to say, decided for, to have a go at them, do you see? Of course, uh, the houses at which they were stopping, and of course, there, it was there that the, that they were all they were all, in other words, I suppose, murdered. see well shot, they were, you see. Now that started bloody Sun, that was the that was the, that was the starting of bloody Sunday that were, you see. So uh, was,
5: was your battalion mixed up in their shooting? I thought Collins oh yeah. had his own squad
10: and uh, uh well of course I mean to say he was he was he was the commander mm. he was the man of course, I mean to say, with regard to uh, to uh, to all those activities do you see of course during the black and tan and all do you see he was the man, do you see mm. when you seen him knocking the of course, you I mean to say there was something there was something doing do you know mm. yes, but uh, of course he was the man of course that uh, that issued the orders mm. himself and uh, uh, general Mulcahy. You see, now they were the two principal men of the guerrilla warfare here in Ireland. Mm. I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to, it's, uh, I'd like to say that I would, uh, uh, of course, and uh, they were the men, of course, that gave the orders to see to uh, through headquarters. You mm. see, so of course I mean to say that uh, on this occasion, of course, uh, we uh, uh, they gave the orders, of course, I mean to say to protect those people. You see, it was the only way, of course, I mean, you to say, the only weapon that we really could use, you see, of course, in our struggle at the time. Mm. Did you do so,
5: something on
10: Bloody Sunday yourself? Were you? uh, I, was, uh, I was out, uh, I was out rec- uh, on, on scout duty. Mm. So that's what I was on, on scout, you see. Of course, we had to have scouts, you see, of course, you see, to watch this one and that one, you see, of course. It was on a Sunday morning that the thing took place, you see. So uh of course uh, I was out going around uh, do, uh, as a scout do you see for to, uh to be able to to uh, get in touch with our people do you see we've we seen any of those people there such as the Tans or that do you see of course uh, we uh, uh, to get in touch then, of course we say with the men that was inside in the houses do you see of course mm. doing their stuff.
5: Mm. And uh,
10: you weren't in Crow Park, that even, uh, no, no. Yeah. you see? Of course, uh, we had, we we did have an idea, you know, when we said that this thing was going to uh, was going to to, to clash. Do you see? With regard to Tipperary and Dublin were playing, you see? Uh, and on that particular day, do you see? And uh, of course, uh, uh the of course the uh, we we of course we had a a good idea. You see, you see, so of course i mean to say it was, uh, we couldn't very well be in, we couldn't very well involve ourselves in it, you know, of course, because uh, these people were out for to to out to get revenge to see if it had taken
0: place on Sunday morning. So yeah, I mean, in that he's describing, I suppose, the context around the events of Bloody Sunday, which is just again, something else that has entered into the Irish psyche and a kind of, in a particularly um, it just stands out in sharp relief. I mean, you have you know, British Army forces, the black and tans conducting a kind of a raid on Crow Park and this football pitch, you get a football kind of pitch. And then unannouncedly kind of just firing into the crowd, start shooting into the crowd. They killed children, they killed just mm-hmm. men and women assembled, injured people, some fatally injured. Um so again it gives a sense of the of the I suppose it's something that led to a certain outrage, shall we say. Yeah, absolutely. In in uh, in the popular consciousness. Um that was Patrick Garvin.
1: So, this, the next man, Tommy O'Reilly, he... Good piece to bring us to kind of towards the end of the, um, the episode because he speaks about how he was arrested and he was arrested and imprisoned in Dublin Castle until until the truce. Um, so, bringing us right towards the end.
11: Okay. Oh, no, Before that, I had been called into GHQ. Into, I was called into the Department of Finance My father was in the Department of Finance. And uh, I was brought in. Collins was in charge. He was Minister for Finance. And I was brought in there. I was to do (coughs) with Joe O'Reilly. Joe O'Reilly was a Cork chap. He was with Collins. And I went up to... I was sent up to... O'Neill's in Street, they gave me a new bicycle I remember as well they got a new bicycle right. <coughs> and I used to go do messages for Collins
3: right
11: there was a jump on the Fibsborough road right and uh, you brought stuff there and you picked up stuff it was a kind of a distributing office right <coughs> and he stopped Mark for GI that was Director of Intelligence Collins was Minister of Finance the Director of Intelligence right um, I, I'd leave i pick up his stuff and leave other stuff there for the Minister of Defence or wherever it might be, the QMG or wherever it might be. <coughs> um,
3: <coughs> did you, Do you know what would be in those messages? No, they're
11: sealed letters. Sealed letters. We never opened them.
3: Mm. And, you know, when you were doing that job, would you keep that very private? or? Oh, we
11: had to. Yep. I mean, there was curfew then, at 8 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night, I think. Right. We were only out in the morning from 10 o'clock till 5. <clears throat> then maybe in the evening, the company had a meeting on, i could down, I go down to the company meeting.
2: Right,
11: right. The officers I was attached to was, <clears throat> first it was in Mary Street, and then we went over to um, Andrew Street, Tahoe mm. Donahue, George McGrath, Eamon Fleming, and there was two Miss Lyonses on it. Now, I met other people that told me they were in the finance, but I never, <laughs> I never met them in it but they told me they were in the department of finance but they could they could have been
3: <coughs> would that have been around 19 19
11: 20, 20. the end of 2021 right. i was arrested on the beginning of july 21 when i was with collins i was coming in with i used to pick up papers in angel street I can't think of him now. He was, and he was in Kilmaine with me. I can't think of his name. He had a, a news agent shop, and I used to pick up all the papers, <coughs> the English papers and Irish papers. They were for intelligence, and I used to bring them down and give them to Joe Riley. I used to meet Joe down in a place in Westland Row, the shop in Westland Row. Around ten o'clock in the morning, <clears throat> when I was coming down Grafton Street at the my Papers in Angel Street, mm-hmm. when I heard halt, I didn't see them on the path. On the path, mm-hmm. <clears throat> then, they just picked me out on the bicycle. <clears throat> so I went around the bicycle. I made a drive. Of, uh, I went around the car. I to one up at the top, which is Duke Street, Rand Street. The one nearest to Green. Um, around that one, I went.
3: Ann Street.
11: I went down Ann Street and turned around to Maltrow Street. <coughs> just got Street. I was heading for the back of the Trinity College. Went to the railings on my bicycle, right. and I went into a, an army an army foot patrol, and I got a dig of a rifle and was put flying.
3: Mm-hmm. I would have got away only for that. Do you think they knew that you were been chased? Well, I
11: think they did because they they came to me and me were auxiliaries and civilians. They arrived on the scene when the other fellows had me because they followed me in the car, in a private car. <coughs> and they searched me, the military searched me, found nothing. The other searched me. We had a, a sl- you know how had the vent in the back no, of your, no. co- we had a little pocket stuck in there and I had a letter there from Mick to Dick. And Mick Sadick was it. <laughs> so I brought over to the intelligence of the castle. King, he was the chief man in the castle, and I think it was the seventh, of July, the sixth or something, early in July, I know. But I right know <coughs> I was left. I was kept in the dungeons, number three dungeon, in the castle. <coughs> As a matter of fact, I was the last prisoner in the dungeons in the castle. I was the last. I was there two weeks after the truce, <coughs> and I was there. And I'd be brought up every day up to the intelligence and getting threatened here and threatened there and cracks here and cracks there. Okay. So I said I knew nothing, I didn't know. I was only picking up a letter.
2: Right.
11: <coughs> and I told them I was leaving it in the lavatory in Westland Row. Right. I said I was gonna I was going to put it at the back of the cylinder, I said. Okay. <coughs> That's what I and I kept to that. Whether they believe me or not, I don't know but i got the works for a long time for the for the until the until the, the morn truth
0: An amazing account like it's crazy when you hear him saying like you know cycling down molesworth street mm. heading on kildare street um down towards the, the Raylands of trinity and then being stopped by this military patrol and dragged in by the black and tans and into the dungeons of dublin castle but, like when you you hear reference to these streets yeah. that you, we know these pla- we yeah. walk up and down these places with our friends all, all, all the all time, the time. Like, exactly and to suddenly see or to hear i suppose you know who else has been on those streets not long ago within kind of um just out of living memory essentially exactly um it's just slightly astounding you have these accounts of i was going to say ordinary people wrapped up doing extraordinary things but they mm. kind of extraordinary extraordinary people just their men and women their their bravery and courage and tenacity and ability to to kind of maintain these networks, hidden networks and systems, underground networks and systems of intelligence and and counterintelligence and guerrilla warfare and so on all across the city and around the country. Um, It's amazing work that you've done. This sort of material as well is really useful, I think, in providing just a kind of three-dimensional sometimes overview as a supplementary kind of account, or accounts that stand in their own right, but, but for anyone who is interested, particularly in kind of the cut and dry details of maybe military history and, or, or history in general, in a more formal sense, mm-hmm. these kinds of records always bring a particular flavor and a color to the descriptions of historical events. Often even just in how, how what they reveal about the popular perception and, yeah. and opinions about, about these kind of events. I was shot into some... School of History students here at the university recently, some master's students about archives and so on, and um, somebody had asked, well, how, how do you kind of assess the truth, how do you assess the truth of, the of say, the folkloric record or of oral history records? <laughs> and what I was ex- saying to, to the student in that case, it's a good question, but that we're not, as folklorists, specifically interested necessarily in the truth or falsity of what's being described, but no. in what it reveals around... The ideas around popular opinions and perceptions and belief and so on exactly and the patterns that emerge in that regard different i suppose if you're looking then at more communal observances and kind of narratives that crop up and motifs again and again but it's just fascinating to have these accounts and to see all the work that you've done um you're going to be giving a lecture with our director christopher mccartig Macaulay- dr christopher mccartig Macaulay- for the folklore violence society exactly So any details is, about about that
1: um it Will take place on the sixth of December at six o'clock on Zoom. So keep an eye out on social media. Um, we'll put a
0: link out to that. Yeah, And, yeah. and people can people will be free to.
1: I think you attend. can yeah register for it's a webinar. You can register and then uh, attend. You'll hear some of the, the the same clips again, but some some might differ as well.
0: Great, and um, I suppose just to say as well, this is will be the last episode before we sign off for Christmas. So we'll see people in the new year. So um, yes, Merry Christmas, God you, Yo Saturn, Alia. yeah, So yeah, to finish, I suppose it brings us up to the brink of civil war. With the signing of the treaty, we kind of enter a new phase of conflict with the, the onset, the establishment of the civil, civil war which is another fascinating topic. I mean, the opening shots of the Civil War um, were the destruction of the Public Records Office of yeah. Ireland. The National Archive was destroyed and <laughs> raised to the ground. That was, that was the beginning of the Civil War, which in ways was a kind of a more bitter conflict than, than the, the War mm-hmm. of Independence that had preceded it. Uh, and again, even the fault lines in kind of the modern political context of the major political parties are still divided along the lines of the Civil War. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Egan Collins himself, in signing it, the, mm-hmm. the Anglo-Irish Treaty, um, that were kind of that we're now coming to the 100 year anniversary of uh, said said it that he thinks he signed his own death warrant Which and he did was, he, yeah, by was August of 1922 he he had been shot and killed in, in the civil war he was killed in in cork mm-hmm. um so i suppose it like i said to thank you again for the the research that you've done and publishing it and bringing it out it's a fantastic collection mm-hmm. to return to to um to return to cork you have a last piece that you want to play to finish with Commandant Horgan?
1: Yeah, it's quite a poignant piece to finish on. So he, he speaks about his own mother and how it was an especially troubling time for her um, when everybody f- who was involved in uh, IRA activity was ex- excommunicated by the church in Cork. Um, and he describes when a pastoral letter was read out in mass, everyone in his own uh, family stood up and left apart from his own mother.
6: My mother ran the whole, t- shoot, you know. Mm-hmm. She was a real benety, and She really ran the whole thing. Yeah. She was a wonderful woman. Yeah. Wonderful woman. And that was, th- that was why she suffered so much again, because she suffered during the Black and Tan period with the raids and what have you. But she suffered also in our relations. Uh, I mean, her, she was a very holy woman. I can still remember my mother taking me up to 8 talk devotions kind of thing, you know no matter where I did where I was I had to be there ready for that and when our famous Dr. Colin excommunicated us in Cork and we were the only place that was the only place where we were excommunicated Uh, and this pastoral letter was written out was read out on the mass those of us who in the IRA including my family all my family practically I think one sister stayed with my mother we got up and walked out Of the church, you know, well, this was was desperate to her because she was, she was very closely related to the to the priests, especially a priest by the name of Father O'Toole, who was um, one of our, well, he used to visit us very often, and this was the heartbreak that mothers went through.